Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. As you're turning, uh, I want to announce something that's going on this summer. We will not be finishing the book of Joshua today, um, but we are going to take a break for a little bit. For the next five weeks, uh, we are going to break away from Joshua and do a separate summer series. What's going to happen is some of you may already know this, probably about the three of you that actually read the realm in Jordan's announcements. Um, but if you, know, if you don't know, it's okay. For the next five weeks, we're going to be doing a summer series through the book of Matthew. Um, I know this might kind of seem off the wall or random in some way, but it's something that us as elders, the five of us, have been looking forward to actually for quite some time now. As a church, we have been given the gift of five elders, pastors, those who shepherd well. Um, and I, I only say that because I know that it is God's grace to us. And I want to remind us of that good grace that he has given to us. Uh, Caleb, Nathan, John, Jordan, and me. Uh, and each of us has different strengths. We've all been given different things that God has given for the sake of this body here at Cornerstone. Um, but we're thankful that each one is able to teach and exhort the body of Christ. Uh, you, you may, you know, you have set me aside, obviously, to do that full-time and, and in a way that I can be undistracted. But that doesn't mean in any way that I'm the only one that is required, uh, excuse me, that meets the requirements or is qualified to preach. Uh, for the month of August, then, the five of us will be going through selected texts from the Gospel of Matthew. We decided to do this back when we were at our elders' retreat back in January. Uh, we've been looking forward to it ever since. I'll begin next week in, in uh, Matthew 1 with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then the other guys will be picking up different selected texts and leading us through the text and things that they think that we need to hear as a congregation. Do not take this then lightly. Do not take what I'm about to say lightly. This series will be a blessing to your soul to hear from men other than me who will be able to not only impart truth but care for you in this aspect. These men love Christ and they love his word. They also love you a great deal. They know you, they sit with you, they pray for you, they weep with you, they rejoice with you. These men take seriously the task of shepherding this body. And I'm excited to see not only what we do together as a body listening, but also how God teaches me through this time so that we can progress and see him use Matthew and these men to preach to us. So I can assure you that although these men are humble and unassuming, they will bring you a profound message. So I'm very much looking forward to this over the next few weeks. Um, that's been the next few weeks, but before we get there, we're going to finish up Joshua 20 and 21 today. So uh, let me read before we start in a passage from Psalm 89. I want you to listen carefully. We're reading the scripture together here. Uh, usually we do it on Friday mornings. Every other Friday morning the elders get together. And this last Friday morning, uh, Caleb read us a, a passage from Psalm 89. And it has been constantly ringing in my ear since Friday, all weekend. And I was trying to figure out why. And it was such a good truth. But then I realized how much it actually dovetailed into what we're learning in Joshua 20 and 21. So let me read uh, Psalm 89, and I'm going to read 11, 12, 13, and 14. 
I want you to listen to the way that God talks about all of creation. And then more specifically, about the land of Israel itself. Now you're going to hear these terms, Tabor and Hermon. These are mountains within the land of Israel. And thus they're telling us about this. And he owns all of it. And his mighty arm controls it. But as we get to the last verse, you're going to hear the psalmist describe how he interacts with his creation and how he presents himself. So let me read verse 11 through 14. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Let's take a minute and pray before we get into it. God, our Father and Lord, Jesus Christ, we thank you for the great gift that you have given to us in the word, Jesus Christ himself, that we might have you, Lord, is absolutely magnificent. But Lord, you've also given us your word which points to yourself and helps us understand not just relying on our own faculties to to figure it out and our experiences, But God, you've given us your word, which is truth, which shows us who you are and leads us to the right path and corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us and instructs us. And so as we come to Joshua 20 and 21, I I pray that you would instruct us. Would you teach us, Lord? Would you correct our thinking? And would you help us to see your good grace in all of this? I pray for your leading. I pray that you would give us soft hearts to hear the word that the seeds of your word would plant down deep in us and bring us to be more like Jesus Christ. Lord, bear fruit in our lives from Joshua 20 and 21. May your spirit be at work in our hearts in a way that I never could be. God, I pray that you would apply to each individual heart, both, Lord, the ones that are yours and those that reject you. I pray that you would break the stony ground and, Lord, you bring them to yourself, that they would say with all, Lord, one day that you are Lord. We love you and thank you for this time, and I ask for your power and strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we finished up the allotment for the seven remaining tribes that were left over in chapters 18 and 19. We learned it was the gracious gift of God who had given these good gifts to his people, not based on their accomplishments, but based on his faithfulness and his own unchanging character. And despite the the, the seven tribes' lack of initiative and pursuit of their inheritance, the Lord delivered to them this land and gave them an inheritance. He could not be thwarted. His promises were true. And last week we saw that all of this was finished up in 18 and 19. All of the different lands have been allotted now. They're distributed throughout all the tribes. But we're not done. We've got to the end of 19. We still have to reckon with chapter 20 and 21. Once we get to chapter 22, you're going to see that the tribes go back east of the Jordan, and we'll talk about that next time we get together. But here we're finishing up, and it's like almost like these things to finish out what he's been trying to say about this land distribution. We started out in Psalm 89, and I brought us to this passage mainly to hear verse 14. If you see it, really what it does is it kind of says and sums up all that we're learning here in chapter 20 and 21 of Joshua. Let me read it again. Psalm 89, 14 says, 
righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Now, this may seem unrelated to our text today, but hopefully by the end as we go through this and we see what these are made for us to consider, as we see this thing, we'll realize that this is what God is doing and showing us that these two chapters in Joshua very much prove that Psalm 89.14 is true. Not only in a general sense, like he's just full of steadfast love and the foundations are some sort of righteousness and judgment. We are going to see through these land allotments that he is weaving this into the fabric of the way they distribute the land. So, we'll enter in this together. What I will present then today will not be difficult necessarily to understand, but it may be difficult to take in. I have a, there's a lot of information here to get through. But I will do my best to give it to you in a way that helps us to summarize, to frame it out, to see that 20 and 21 are a unit, unit teaching us something about who God is and what something we're supposed to know about it. We've already seen all the land given out. In chapter 20 and 21, we aren't hearing about new allotments. We haven't come to hear another new section of land that we haven't heard about before. Instead, what we're actually seeing is God working into the tribes saying, now you will take this and give it back to me so that I can use it for my specific purposes. In chapter 20, we become familiar with the cities of refuge and how they function to protect the manslayer from undue retribution. Then we get to chapter 21. We'll watch as the Levites ask for their allotment, which is these cities and pasture lands. And we'll see that they're actually claiming a promise back from Numbers 35, something that God gave to them. It's really a, quite an interesting shift as the author does this. He shows us that these things are so important to God that they are codified or codified in the land distribution document. It's not just some old dusty list of lands and history. In this code, in this distribution list, we have who he is. We are watching him tell us a story about himself. So in chapter 20, we'll see the justice of God. In chapter 21, we will see the faithfulness of God. And again, as we start out by looking here at Joshua chapter 20, I'm going to read the first, I will read the whole chapter at first, and then we'll move on. So take a look at Joshua 20, and we'll read verse 1 to the end. <coughs> Excuse me. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who was high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, 
so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. From the beginning, we'll notice that the first speaker is God. Look who initiates this whole thing. God is the one initiating this interaction. He has brought the issue actually up to Joshua because it's important to him. He is reminding the nation of what Moses said back in Numbers 35. There were to be cities of refuge given to those that needed to seek asylum. These were places that had open gates to those that were running from an avenger of blood. Now, let's take a minute and describe the way that the system worked for a minute here. Back since Genesis 9, so this is right after the flood, in Genesis 9-6, you probably remember this verse, Noah was told that we were basically going to have to be, if blood was shed, there would have to be blood shed again to actually make retribution. If blood had been shed, blood would be required for it to balance itself out. And again, notice I did not say vengeance. That is only the Lord's. God said that for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning, something to balance this out. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So what we're seeing is that the ancient rule had become the law of the land. Not only in Israel, but actually most likely for several different nations throughout the land. Whenever someone was killed, the family of the deceased had the right to take the life of the one who killed them. This was usually uh, some sort of a close relative who would go and have the means and the ability to go and exact judgment on this person. Now, this person would set out with an intent to make sure justice was served and to set the record straight, blood for blood. So effectively, they became the agent of capital punishment in this day. They would search for and find and kill the offender. This was a very normal practice. And I can only assume for a minute that the intent was for the family to think through the case a little bit more and see if the avenger of blood actually meant to do this or not. Now, I can't prove that from this text, but I think they were supposed to think that way through because we see that in the rest of the Bible, the way that God treats murder and the non-murder and how he actually considers those things. But as time goes by, God interacts more specifically with his people. We, we pass by Genesis 9, we're going through. By the time we get to Exodus 20, you know where we're at? We're at Sinai in the wilderness when God makes his people his own. He is going to put something in the law for us to understand even more specifically. This ancient rule had become the law of the land, like I said, but now he was going to make it more specific. God explicitly said that the killer has the chance to run to the altar and to grab hold of the horns of the altar so that he would have asylum and he would then have refuge in that place. In this passage, Moses shows us that this can only happen if this person has not willfully attacked another person to kill them by cunning. In other words, what he's saying is, if this killing was done unintentionally or unknowingly, then this person could receive asylum at the altar of the tabernacle. Now, this is a good development for them. This helps and would lead them to several situations where they could actually make sure that they weighed out the case to see what was true and what was not. And the heat of passion would have been quelled for a moment until they could actually make a good judgment. They needed for the avenger of blood to be persuaded that this person was not guilty of premeditated murder. And so this is a gracious rule that God has given for the one that's committed manslaughter. But in Numbers 35, we're continuing to progress in our text today, also in Joshua, we get another development, more than just the horns on the altar and the tabernacle. Remember the people were out in the wilderness. 
They were all together. They were all one big conglomerate moving about. Now they're in the land. Where are they now? As they've been allotted and told to go pursue their inheritance. They are on purpose being spread out throughout the land. So the central place, uh, here we know is Shiloh, where the tabernacle is set up, is going to be for some close, but for most it's actually going to be quite far away and very difficult to make it to this place of refuge. And so in Numbers 35, we see that God is giving them a way to have justice, a way for them to come and plead their innocence before the court. We have God reminding the people in this area that he made a provision for them when they're moving into this new land. He gave them cities of refuge. And instead of one central place, he gave them six places that they could run and obtain this asylum. Asylum. Now, I could preach chapter 20 by itself. It's so good. There's much for us to learn here. Uh, However, I also think that the bigger picture is encapsulating all of 21. So what I'm going to do, because I don't want to just breeze over it, I'm going to give you five things that we need to notice from chapter 20, and then we will move on to chapter 21. But let me just throw out these five things that we ought to notice about this passage. Number one, notice that God cares about justice. These aren't just a, a, a namesake Uh, like a namesake city. These are meant for the purpose of giving asylum to those who have not intended to but killed someone. We see that he cares then about justice so that their blood wouldn't be shed on, on, on accident as well. But then secondly, notice that the root problem has always been about what's going on in the heart. Not about the specific action, whether it's with a sword or a gun or a mallet. That's not the specific action they're most concerned about. Look at this in verse 5. They shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. Interesting that he would bring us back to hate. The very thing that Jesus said is the root problem. You say, uh, old commandment, do not murder. I tell you, do not hate your brother. Why? Because it's always been the truth. The real problem is hatred in one's heart. So we see the physical act is certainly one thing, but then we see that God is pointing out the real problem is the hatred that's in the person's heart. So if I can just stop for a minute, let this be a warning to us to recognize how God views hatred and what that means to him and the struggle that we have between our brothers and sisters and those that are around us as fellow image bearers. Now, the third thing I want you to notice, God holds life in high regard. In case you didn't catch it, the person who killed another man unintentionally or unknowingly was not off the hook once he was considered to be uh, not guilty of murder. If you, see, if you see here, even if he was found innocent of murder, was found to have killed the person, he was still sentenced to live in the city of refuge. Really, he couldn't go back because the sanctity and the preciousness of human life. Murder, of course, was answered by capital punishment. But this here, manslaughter, was to be answered with a life lived, almost imprisoned in this city of refuge. God shows his people that human life is extremely precious to him and that there must be an answer for a life taken. That since man was made in the image of God, his death is not to be taken lightly. The man or woman who had committed manslaughter could only ever leave the city of refuge if two things happened. Number one is if they were found to be innocent of murder. But number two, something a little bit different. They could not be released until the high priest had died. 
Now, this is a little bit weird for us, but this leads to the fourth observation. Notice that there is only one way that the manslayer could be redeemed for his actions, even if they were unintentional, and reconciled to his family, home, and tribe. It was through the death of a high priest, the one who stood before all of Israel and represented Israel to God himself. In verse 6, you'll see this. He says, And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at that time. The man, then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. Now, some of you have already started to pick up on it. You know where we might be going here. But for the rest of you like me that slowly get this, let's just try to see if we can understand this weird detail. Why would this... He would wait until that guy died, the high priest. It seems like kind of a strange detail to include. Um, why would we need to wait until the high priest died for this person to be released from the city of refuge? It's a good question. And if we look here in the text of Numbers, where this is spelled out, and in Joshua, we don't have a reason given. It doesn't tell us specifically why this is true. It doesn't tell if it's like years of Jubilee have come up and now he dies and so now it's like a whole fresh slate and amnesty is granted. It doesn't tell us anything like that. But I'll ask you these questions. Who is it that redeems us from our sins and reconciles us, reconciles us to the Father and his people? Who acts as a great high priest and makes propitiation for all of the sins of his people? And may I ask you, how did he do it? Do you see that this is actually a picture or a shadow of the one who will come and do the work that no one else could do? It was Jesus who was made like us so that he could be our great high priest. We see here a shadow of what is to come. It was Jesus who said, well, actually it was about Jesus that was said in Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is beautiful. In the midst of these boring land distribution lists, we see Christ proclaimed. He is all behind this. This is not meaningless. This is all on purpose and teaching us something. Even at this place here, this little aside helps us to understand that it took death of the one who represented the people to God. It took his death to make a way for the manslayer to return to his home. A price had to be paid for the killing of another human being. That's the fourth thing we learn. The fifth thing we learn, lastly, is for us specifically. Notice that this is not just for the Israelite. This is for the non-Israelite stranger as well. He says this in verse 9, These were designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them. This is good news for us. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are not Jews by blood, but receive the same justice given to his people. And so we see these things in chapter 20 jump out at us that are really important for us to understand the justice of God. These are just a few observations that we need to store away and treasure as we move on. But as we do so, we must forge ahead because Joshua's not done. He wants to make sure he tells us all about the way God views this land, how he will interact with the people, and what characteristics show up. So go ahead and take a look at chapter 21, and we're going to read the first three verses. 
Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. In other words, the Levites came to leadership. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The Levites have come to Joshua and the leadership and have asked for what Moses had promised them back in Numbers 35. They know that they will not be assigned a territory like everyone else, but they know that they have been given cities and pasture lands. The Levites then, get this, they properly ask for that inheritance. They come and say, we want those pasture lands and those cities that were promised to us. In verse 3, there isn't even any dialogue. It's just the response of the narrator. By the command of the Lord, they gave them these different cities. It was very straightforward. They allotted the cities of Levi. In the rest of the chapter, you're going to see each city allotted to them. And what's going to happen is you're going to notice that their places are in all the different tribes of Israel. For instance, in verse 4, they are given cities within Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. In verse 5, in the cities of Ephraim, um, cities within Ephraim, Dan, and Manasseh. And then it goes on and on. And eventually what we see is that the tribe of Levi is scattered throughout all of Israel. Hmm, that sounds a lot like last week we learned about one group that was kind of like that. One that did not get a completely sealed off land of their own. Simeon. Remember Simeon gets his allotment, which is actually a bunch of cities within Judah? We took time last week and went back to Genesis 49 and saw that Jacob brought all his sons together, gave blessings and gave cursings. And Simeon and Levi had the one that said, you will not get the same allotment as your brothers and sisters, your brothers. Instead, what you will get is this curse on your anger and your wrath because of what you did at Shechem. Again, that's a whole separate story, but because of their improper wrath and their taking of life at Shechem, they was told at the end, the last part of verse 7 says, I will divide these two, Simeon and Levi, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Last week we saw that this happened to Simeon, but now we see it happening with Levi. They don't got one special spot. There's a city over here, and a city in this tribe, and cities in this tribe, and cities in this tribe. They're all over, scattered throughout all of Israel. Levi does not receive an inheritance like the rest of them, but they do receive towns to live in and pasture lands, and possessions in one sense that will help them with their everyday life. But we need to stop for a minute. There's something here that we should, as readers, ask about this. If we've been reading through 13 through 19, which is these distribution lists, we've heard the tribe of Levi come up before. We've heard them alongside of the other ones. As they get their stuff, Levi gets this little mention, and they move on. And then Levi gets this other little mention. I'm going to bring up some areas here. I want you to just clue in on just for a minute, jog our memories of what I'm talking about. Listen to chapter 13, verse 14. While he is talking about the inheritance of the land that's east of the Jordan, the one that Moses already allotted out to the tribes. He says this, To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. Now skip down, 1332. He summarized it all and says this, these are the inheritance, inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance, 
the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. And then in chapter 18, verse 7, we see it again. Joshua says, the Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. Levi has not received the same type of allotment as everyone else. They have received something far better. Joshua described their allotment as having God himself as their possession. They are given the offerings by fire to the Lord for their inheritance. And the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance, their possession. In other words, they are given the most precious gift that Israel could get. God himself. It was Levi's privilege and his responsibility to mediate between Yahweh and his people. It was Levi's job to be totally devoted in leading Israel, the whole nation, in worship to their covenant Lord. They were stewards of God's presence. They were guardians, if we can call it this way, they were guardians of the worship of God, their Lord. They were committed to keep Israel in covenant faithfulness with their God. They had the task of teaching all of Israel the commands of Moses. They were set in this position to offer sacrifices by fire so that the people of Israel might rightly receive forgiveness of sins and properly worship their king, the Lord God of all creation and of Israel. Levi has inherited the Lord himself, and as priests of the Lord, it is their job to take this incredible gift and in a sense give it to the rest of the nation and mediate this understanding and actually this relationship between Israel and God himself. Levi has not received the same type of allotment as the rest of Israel. They have received an allotment that is specifically made to bless Israel and keep them in covenant faithfulness with their God. Without covenant faithfulness and obedience to each word of Yahweh, if you remember this, the land will easily slip from the people's fingers. All the tribes of Israel will very easily lose their possession if they will not follow Yahweh wholeheartedly. Remember the opening command in Joshua 1. Be careful to do all that is written in the law of Moses. The land is only a good gift. It is a good gift, but it's only a gift. And it can be lost or forfeited um, by persistent disobedience or just flat-out unfaithfulness to their God. And so at the beginning of their time as owners of this land, God places the Levites in each tribe so that they will understand and remember to teach the law to God's people. And so when they know this law, they will obey. A constant reminder of God's gracious giving of the sacrificial system, but also his law so that they would know him. In these two chapters then, 20 and 21, we are seeing that God is so concerned about justice and faithfulness that he writes these things into the architecture of the land allotments themselves. We saw in chapter 20 that it's about his justice. But then in 21, giving the Levites this as their inheritance is not only a blessing for them to have a place to keep their sheep, but it's a blessing for the entire group of Israel. And that is God's presence to them mediated through the Levites. Not only does he give the Israelites commands to do justly and to remain faithful, although he does give them those, he makes it so uh, important that he drills down and bakes it right into the stuff that they call their lands. The way that it's supposed to be is showing them that this is the way justice looks, this is the way that faithfulness looks. The cities of refuge show us God's heart toward the sanctity of human life. But they also protect the one who killed another one 
of an innocence, whether it was an accident or not. They teach us that God is not partial or unjust in his way that he holds the standard to different men. Then the cities of, of, uh, of Levi and these pasture lands remind us that God cares so much that his people maintain covenant faithfulness that they will have God's agents of steadfast love among them, the Levites, constantly teaching them. And they will act as sojourners. This, this is a really cool thing too. You see the Levites actually acting as pilgrims, as sojourners within the whole land. Because they own these tiny little lands, but they don't actually own a, a territory like the other ones do. And so they act as priests, of course, but also as sojourners, an example for us understanding what is far more important, as we also have been given the most important inheritance, which is Christ himself, the pearl of great price. And we recognize, we talk about the priesthood of the believer. He calls us a kingdom of priests, and we recognize that this starts to look like what we are supposed to look like. This is God's design, and it is a good design. And we can easily read and see that the psalmist was right. When the psalmist said, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. I mean, what love that God would do this. And again, weave it into the fabric of the land as they are starting out with these land allotments that they understand what's most important to God. And then it constantly pushes them back to justice. It constantly pushes them back to faithfulness to their God. What grace to us who need to respond correctly to our God. As we said last week, God will not allow his people to thwart his promises. And even here today, we realize that his plans and designs are such that we might have the things that we need to do all the things that he asks of us as his people. Now, there are so many different applications for us this morning. We could go down any one of these and just go down and think through, and we should. One of the parts that we maybe don't talk about as much and we should consider over and over again is meditation. I'm not talking about freeing your mind of all things. I'm talking about taking the Word of God and chewing on it and thinking over it, even little pieces over and over and over again, and allowing them to change who we are. And by faith, the Spirit continues to work these things into our hearts so that we may look more like Jesus Christ. But this morning, I simply want you to see that even in these distribution lists that go back to the Levites, that go back for these cities of refuge, that it is God's design to show us and to make it simple for us to realize justice and steadfast love are important. And it kind of describes exactly who he is. And so it results in worship and a life reminding that our God has given us everything that we need. I will take a minute, for those that don't know this Savior and don't know what I'm talking about, like this is just some ancient book and it sounds cool, you need to know this God. There will be a reckoning one day and there will be no forgiveness for those who are guilty, which is every one of us, every last one of us. This land, the inheritance that we talk about as Christ being ours, is not yours if you're in rebellion against this God. And can I encourage you, as a friend, and someone who would plead with you, please repent of your sin and trust this God and this God alone. Through Jesus Christ, he has made a way for you not to take the wrath poured out. He poured it out on his son, Jesus. So if you do not know this Lord, if you do not trust him, if you not submit to him as the Lord of the universe, friend, repent and know this God and know true life. 
For the rest of us, it's not that much of a different message. This Lord has taken care so much so to bake it into this passage and show us that he cares deeply about justice and steadfast love between him and his people. And so we are called to obedience. We are called to love this God, to act justly, and to act with steadfast love in response. And that looks like obedience and submission to our God. And so let us look on Joshua 20 and 21 and say, praise be to God and have it turn out to be worship to him and him alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for this text that is for our good and for our instruction and to show us who you are and to even show us that you made a system in this city of refuge to protect the manslayer. And even in that system, you showed that you cared about life And even in that system, you showed that there had to be bloodshed so that that person could go free and be reconciled to his home. But we recognize that these are all things that show us our great need for a high priest to die and give his life for us. We worship you together today, Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for giving us yourself. We don't take it lightly, Lord, that we are a kingdom of priests given the inheritance which is God himself. May we not love the gifts, Lord, but may we love the giver and the real gift, the pearl of great price, Christ himself. We love you and ask for your help as we continue on trying by your Holy Spirit's power with God-wrought effort to obey and to be faithful to you, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.